Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is you, not in some crazy meta sense, but you are today's guest because I asked on here and on Twitter for your questions, and I told you that I would answer them, and I will answer them, you know, being a person of my word. And I have to say, um, I loved the response Some of your questions surprised me. Some didn't surprise me. There was a good deal of, I'd say, similar concern uh, expressed. A lot of it had to do with some kind of insecurity about whether you should be trying to do this kind of work, creative work, or not. And um, I'm going to give you my best answer to each of these questions, or as many as I can get to. You need to know that um, I don't necessarily hold myself out as having definitive answers to these questions. And some of them are quite difficult to answer with any authority for anyone, especially the question I got many times, which is, how do I know if I'm good enough? And the reason that that question is so hard to answer and why it's so prevalent is the same. Uh, And it's because it's a foundational, primal, early life question. And it's a question that has as much to do with the way you were raised, the way you grew up, the way your parents expressed love or didn't express love, as it is about whether you're really a good enough artist. So there are, there are things one can look at, metrics one can look at that can give you an indication of whether your impulses toward this artistic life seem to have a chance to pay some kind of dividends to you. But I don't believe that's at the heart of the question. At the heart of the question is the desire for some outside force to tell you not only are you good enough, is your work good enough, but that you essentially are good enough, that you don't have to change, that you don't have to run the fastest or that you don't have to learn to walk the fastest or to read the fastest. But that in fact, what you are made of is worthy of love, support, protection, um, respect, all that stuff. And so if you're somebody who asks that question frequently uh, about the work you're doing, and I, I want to separate it out, right? Because yes, it's a very legitimate question to say, hey, I wrote this short story. I've sent it out 20 times. It got rejected 20 times. Hey, Mrs. Editor, Ms. Editor, Mr. Editor, Mix Editor, hey, is this story essentially fucked up or can this story be fixed? That's a quite a different question from, am I good enough? Am I crazy? And I want us to be clear about which question we're asking. And I want us to be clear about why we're asking that question. And one of the questions you can find an answer for kind of easily or in a kind of straightforward manner. And often the answer to that one is we don't know yet. The easy one, right? Is if you want to quit because, or if you want to quit trying to sell the things, you can 
to me, the, uh, the question was, do I still get something out of doing the creative work? If I still get something out of doing the creative work, then I'm going to keep doing the creative work. And, um, and as long as the creative work is making me feel more alive during the day, not less alive during the day, as long as the creative work is inspiring me, as long as it's making me seem uh, kinder to those that I love because I'm engaged in something that matters to me, then the more I'm going to do it. And that was my attitude before we sold the first script. If instead it is pulling you down, then I, I would look at it, but I wouldn't look at it from a standpoint of has the thing sold yet? Or I wouldn't let that be the definitive thing in whether you continue or you don't continue. Continue as long as the work is fulfilling. Continue as long as when you get up in the morning, that's the thing you want to do. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy to do. That doesn't mean you're never dealing with a sense of feeling either blocked or stopped somehow. But I'm talking about when you look at it overall, is it additive to your existence or is it taking something away from your existence? And if you can answer honestly that it's additive, then I, you know, I think keep going. Because I, I don't really understand how to give advice in the opposite direction. I really don't understand the purpose of giving advice in the opposite direction. And I'm not surprised this is the most frequently asked question. I've said many times that the line between being a successful artist and delusional is very thin. And that line, when I say it, is true. But there is um, a little bit of glibness to it because it, it subtracts the pain of not knowing. So I, I understand that there is a pain of not knowing. I understand there's a fear attached with not knowing. But that's the terrain we're in. We're in the terrain of creating stuff. If we're in the terrain of making stuff, and if we're in the terrain of changing things, by definition, we're in some scary terrain. And I choose to embrace it. And yeah, it's easy from my perch on a certain level because I've had success at it. Um, and because I've had rewards, people, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that the fact that people respond to the work didn't matter to me. It does. It makes it easier in the fallow periods to know that on the other side is the very real possibility of an audience because I've had one before. So that in the times when it wasn't going so well commercially, I didn't really ask myself whether I was a person who could tell these stories or do this. That had been proven to me already. That said, in the beginning, that wasn't the case. And I just knew I had to do it. And so that's the answer to sort of the most frequently asked question. And I think it's a very deep question and I understand it. And now let's move on to a couple of other questions and maybe we'll circle, uh, maybe we'll circle back. So what's the next question I want to answer? Okay, it's related. Gerilyn said, um, this quote of yours is so powerful to me. And the quote is, block people become toxic. They become toxic to themselves and to the people around them. And this person who wrote in says, I recognize so many of my own family members in this quote, people who could have had brilliant creative lives and instead became toxic. How do I avoid the same fate and get unblocked 
When living among these people has led me to believe that a creative, fulfilled life is not for me. I especially struggle with this because I benefited from my parents' stable career choices, see no college debt, and yet I see how they denied their own dreams and desires for mine and never became fulfilled people. Yeah, well, me too. Uh, not the they didn't become fulfilled people. My parents, um, both of them in their own way, were and are fulfilled. My mom passed away. My dad's still thriving. Um, but I definitely... Uh, also had college paid for by people who were responsible. I've often talked about the fact that one of the reasons I was able to dream uh, and live a life that was beyond a life of just trying to take care of me and mine was because I didn't have college debt. I had a family that there was a safety net there for me. I, I, college was paid for uh, and I could figure out how I wanted to live my life. But the question of how to get through the block for me, as complicated as it is, as disturbing as it is, and, and you know, I was a blocked writer until I was 30. This is my foundational story and it's true. Uh, until I found a way, it was, it was so painful to be blocked and I felt that toxicity thing happening. And I didn't want to be toxic to those that I loved. And I did straightforward things. First, I wrote down what I wanted to be doing, how I wanted to feel. And I knew that was doing something creative. I couldn't do it. And I read the book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I started doing morning pages every day, three longhand pages every morning. And in doing the morning pages, something happened. And reading her book and doing the exercises. And I would say her book and Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, and I had Pressfield on the podcast. Those tools are just, they work. If you do it, if you do the artist's way, if you read the book and you do the exercises, you will be presented with the opportunity to get past this block and to create the work that you want to create. I can't say that strongly enough. The power of three longhand pages every morning, it tips your unconscious, it tips your subconscious out onto the page. It gets you past the perfectionism. It gets you past the guilt, which you, I hear in your letter, this guilt. But you know, you're, you're, even if your family tells you they want you to do something responsible, the truth is they did all this work so that you can try to soar. Parents are terrified of their children not being able to uh, survive. So their fear is going to make them look at you uh, askew if you are trying something different and that, but that's fear. Don't let that, don't catch that fear. It's contagious, don't catch it. And just do a little bit of work every day. Related to this is this idea, one page a day for a year is 365 pages. Even one page a day for a year minus Sundays or Saturdays is over 300 pages. So, and that's three screenplays or that's a novel. You don't have to carve a giant chunk of time. All you have to do is produce a little bit of work every day. Uh, and then you'll find yourself uh, living a life that feels uh, a bit more um, fulfilled, I think. Here's the thing about eight sleep. Eight. Eight sleep. Every time you listen to a podcast or go online, you get another ad for another mattress. There are thousands of them. 
And you know what? They're all fine. It's something to sleep on. But only one uses technology and temperature to give you the deepest, sweetest sleep. The Pod by 8sleep is the very first bed to combine dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to ensure you're getting the best sleep possible. Research shows the deep link between sleep performance and temperature, so the pod reacts in real time to your body's unique needs, adjusting the temperature to keep you comfortable and sleeping deeply all night long. Look, the stats say it all. Customers who sleep on the pod fall asleep faster. They toss and turn 25% less. They have a 17% increase in periods of deep sleep, all in a crazy comfortable bed. That's why it is the fitness-approved bed loved by athletes, trainers, and models. Right now, get 150 bucks off your pod and free shipping when you go to 8sleep.com slash moment. That's 8sleep.com slash moment. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash moment. Oh, I like this question. It's from Mark or Marquis. Um, and the question is, how do you as a middle-aged man find the gas in the tank needed for your creative process? Hand on heart at this age, he's saying, we can literally feel there's less and less gas in the tank year on year. I'm asking as another middle-aged man who's trying to get some kind of creative practice going while still working to support my family. So the key to this, I think, is to say no to all the inessential things. And it's hard, right? Because stuff seems essential. But I understand where you're coming from. But a couple things. One, I really added cardio back into my life in an aggressive way this year. And even though I'm still um, really fat, I, I hesitate to use the word fat in case it bothers anybody, but that's how I think of myself. I am fat. But I also do cardio five or six days a week and I don't miss it. And I do 45 minutes and I push myself and that has made me feel so much better. It's given me so much more energy. Also, I have found that I'm able, I'm better able as I get older to get rid of the distracting stuff. So that let's say in the old days you could really, work for a very long period of time, highly concentrated. But the truth is, it probably wasn't that highly concentrated. For me, I think all you need is an hour or two a day to do this kind of work. And so I would say, yes, even if you're a middle-aged person and you're feeling tired after work or if you don't get enough sleep, like, don't watch a ball game, don't watch television, go to sleep super early, wake up super early, and give an hour a day or two hours a day to doing this work. If, that's, if this work is calling to you. And from your letter, it sounds like this work is calling to you. And I, I think that fear that you don't have gas in the tank is another version of what Stephen Pressfield calls resistance. And to me, it's another way to reason out why you can't do this work. I don't buy it. I'm 53 years old, before Billions started, Dave and I were almost out of the business. We'd been fired off of a movie. Sorry, we'd been fired off of a television series. We had a movie come out that bombed. Talk about feeling tired and, and, and used up and like my career was toast. And getting up the energy to do the work was really difficult. But so that's at 49, you know, at 49, right? Uh, Dave and I write this thing. I think the show goes on the air. I'm 50 years old. Maybe I'm still 49, uh, turn 50 as it's on the air that April. And who would have thought that I would have the greatest commercial and artistic success of my life in my 50s? But that's what happened. And that's what can happen for you, no matter what your age is. I'm only saying this stuff because 
I lived it. One of the things I did that stoked my creativity was this podcast, right? I started this podcast 2013 when, uh, in 2014, when I was feeling at my creative low. And I started talking to people about these issues, about how they process their highest and lowest moments, about what they did to move forward. And what I realized is what they did was so basic, but so hard. And all they did was put one foot in front of the other. It sounds so trite. It sounds um, almost impossibly simple, but it turns out to be the only true answer. Every day, do a little bit. And you know, you ask somebody, hey, you know, you, you, your television show got canceled. Uh, your album, your record company flushed your album down the toilet. And what do you hear? What you hear is yes, and I didn't know how I'd ever work again. And I walked around the city for hours and I, or I was on my farm or I had to go back to my parents. And then one day I was sitting there and I looked across the room and there was my guitar, same six strings. So I walked over and I tuned and then my fingers found the fretboard. I don't know, what was my choice? I, I started writing and as soon as I started writing, I remembered, hey, they can't take that away from me. I can still write. I can still sing. Well, if I can write and sing, fuck, if I get a microphone, I, I can go up on a stage and I can perform again. And then before you know it, the person realizes the judgment of the outsiders, whoever dropped them from the label or fired them from the band, that doesn't matter. What matters is the next song, the next performance, the next verse, the next chorus. And that's how they start again. And that's how I started again. And that's how you can start again or start for the first time. Okay, um, Alicia asks me, did you intentionally cultivate the habit of creativity in your kids? And if you did, what did you find to be successful? If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know both of my kids write. Um, my son's first book is coming out this month, uh, about which more later or it's coming out next month, sorry, November. The answer is what we did in our house, and Amy is a writer and a director. Uh, Amy's a filmmaker and a novelist. That's my wife. And our daughter, Anna, is in college, and um, we all would say the best writer in the family. It's not that we consciously stoked creativity. What it is is that we, and I've, I'm always really hesitant to talk about parenting because that job is never done, and also I don't take credit for my kids' accomplishments ever. And I don't judge them by their accomplishments. And in fact, what mattered the most to us was that they were sweet to each other. And Amy was incredible at figuring out how to help that to happen. And then they both were really good at it, the kids. Uh, but what we did was just live uh, a life by example. So Amy and I both would take time, be creative, do our stuff, talk about what it felt like, we all read each other's stuff. We all gave notes to each other and, and that stuff still happens. We didn't tend to have a very top-down approach to parenting. So it's not like we, we tried to tell them what they should be ever or how. It was more like we tried to make things available to them. And we stressed probably doing something that contributes in some way and that makes you feel alive. And they both gravitated toward somehow this, this form of communication. Um, but I do not think parenting is a science at all. I think it's an art form and I think it's about connecting 
with your kids and, and listening, listening to your kids the, the best that you can. So the other day, um, Sam and I went and played basketball and we had a really funny experience. We go play at this place Sam plays a lot. He happened to be in New York and so I went with him. And we're playing and a third guy, a friend of Sam's was on our team and it was three on three and the, the friend of Sammy's mentioned the Koppelman family, like we scored or we did something and the guy's like, the Koppelman family's not kidding around. And then after the game, one of the guys we were playing against, a uh, guy was playing hard, really sweet jump hook this guy had, guy's name is Spencer. And, and, and Spencer said, hey, are you Brian Koppelman? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm a podcast fan. I was like, that's cool. Uh, how did you figure it out? And he said, well, I heard Sam and Brian and Koppelman and it doesn't take a genius. So Spencer, thanks for saying hi. And you asked a couple questions here. So I'm going to try to uh, get to them. Because I mean, if you find me on a basketball court and then you ask me uh, a question, I'm going to answer that question. So Spencer, your, one of your questions is, I'm curious to hear if you have a process for auditioning ideas for projects. What makes an idea graduate from the notes folder on your phone to something more substantial? Are there distinct phases that come after or is it more a question of feel and which ideas you find maintaining a hold on you? Yes, it's that. It's that almost exclusively. But remember, I do this with a partner. So it's ideas that David and I find ourselves unable to let go of. It's obsession, really. From the beginning, from walking into a poker club, if something just takes hold of my imagination and stays there and starts to grow, if like lines start to come up or characters or the world, I start reading everything I can about something. I start watching everything I can. I go visit where it is. Um, I feel myself become kind of like a flame about this thing. That's when I know I should work on it. So you have a lot, and that goes for finishing a song too. Like whatever it is that you're, when an idea comes to you, you stoke it. You try to treat each of them in the beginning like that. But then some, they continue in that way and some don't. In, in my old life, I used to never finish anything when I was in my 20s. And so I, I have to take some, so, so the writing every morning, the journaling, right? Ideas will start to surface again and again in the journal or surface when you're walking around. I like to take long walks. I meditate, so when I do, will float in in the meditation and if it keeps resurfacing, I'll know that it's real, but also through talking to Dave, right? If I throw an idea out and Dave's like, well, we could do this with that or I could do that. And then suddenly we're building upon it and making it bigger and better and more, then we're in great shape. And so that's a big part of uh, how it happens. And then Spencer, you also asked, do you have any story ideas that feel like they'd be best realized in a form other than screenwriting? And you said, do you ever work in other formats either as cross training or because you just want to? Well. I mean, the podcast is one of those things. I write a lot of essays too, or I have that have been published in a lot of places, short stories, Dave writes his novels. And so absolutely, we both will, if there's another outlet. Lately, it's songwriting for me. Like I'll have an idea or a line and I'll just grab a guitar and um, I'll try to get something down or I'll, I'll write the words and then I'll send them to some, a friend of mine who's a musician. But yeah, I'm not gonna limit it because I'm not thinking about the market. So if I get an idea, yeah, if I get an idea and I know it's a movie or I know it's a television show, yeah, I'll, let's go after that. But if I don't, I won't just throw it out. I'll be like, because I view each of these things as really valuable. Like writing songs is scary to me and hard. So it's tremendously valuable to do it because it reminds me of what it's like to be a beginning artist again, what it's like to be scared, and then what it's like to press through that fear and get to the other side. 
Should we talk about ZipRecruiter? Yes. Hiring can be a challenge as Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner discovered. Gretchen needed to hire a game artist for her education company. She knew it wouldn't be easy to find someone to grow with her team. That's why she went to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your jobs. You get qualified candidates fast. Gretchen posted her job on ZipRecruiter and said she was impressed with how quickly she found qualified applicants. She also used ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter her candidates so she could focus on the best ones. And that's how Gretchen found a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. There's another question, and this question is from Anne-Marie. And Anne-Marie asks... If you can talk more in depth about the slog of writing Solitaire Man and how you fought through it when it didn't seem like you could, that would be amazing. Specifically, the daily grind and fight itself versus the necessary break to do stand-up. What you told yourself and how you countered resistance in your inner critic. What you said or didn't say to disapproving relatives who'd rather you had a job. Well, the answer is, by the time we were, I was writing Solitary Man, David and I had already written Ocean's 13. Or, so, well, I started, I started Solitary Man before Ocean's 13 and then finally finished it after Ocean's 13. But I had a career at this. The scary thing there was I'd only ever written long-form stuff with David. I'd written essays alone, but I'd only written long-form stuff with David. And I wasn't really sure that I could do it myself. I wasn't really sure that that kid who was unable to finish college assignments until six months late could really find a way to hold an entire screenplay in his head and then actually write the whole thing. Plus, I couldn't figure out the second half of the story because my outline kind of ran out. But what happened was I, out, I outlined like half of it in a flurry. And I, I didn't want to wait. I wanted to write that because I was so nervous that I, otherwise I wouldn't do it. So I, I sprinted out and wrote so much, but then kind of wrote myself into a corner to which I didn't have the answer. And it sucked because I really felt like, boy, if I show these 30 pages to somebody or these at some one point, it was like 55 or 60 pages. I was like, this is like, this is a movie. Like this character is a real character. I can get a movie star to play this character. I felt those things, but then it just stopped. And, and it was years before I could finish it. I gave it to a, uh, one of my best friends, David Sigerson, the, in, at the 60 page mark. And he asked me a question about what, I thought was supposed to happen at the end because I did have an idea about the end. And I told him something and he was like, well, I don't really want to see this thing. And he said, X. And I said, I thought I have to pay that off. And he's like, nah, you don't have to pay that off. And I was ready to hear it then. It was years later and, and he said it. I then remember walking around and then, oh, Amy and I went with the kids out and we rented a house for a couple of weeks. And suddenly after all this time, I was able to blast through the, I, I was able to write slug lines like, boom, this is next, this is next, this is next, and here's where we end. And I blasted out those slug lines and one line of description for each of them, and then I was able to write the end of it in three weeks. Uh, but it was years of, uh, it was years of feeling like a failure, even as the rest of our career was going well. You, feeling like a failure and having years of feeling like a failure is a fairly common 
theme in these creative lives. You just kind of try to find your way through them. All right, Alan has a question, which is, I was just listening to the Writers Panel podcast you and David did. Something came up that's been nagging me for a while. What is it about Craig Mazin's notes that make them so extraordinary? It's something you've mentioned a couple times, and it has me intrigued. You must get notes from a range of amazingly talented people, so I don't know what sets Mazin's notes apart. Well, Craig didn't phone them in at all. First of all, Craig's proven now, right? Go watch Chernobyl. But Craig was able to get to the heart as a fellow professional and as someone who gave notes without ego. Listen, Craig and I go back and forth a lot, and there's no one is going to say Craig doesn't have an ego, as I have an ego. But when Craig gave notes, it wasn't about, hey, look at me, I'm going to dazzle you with my notes. Craig's notes were, here are the problems. Here's a possible solution. Here's what I think you're trying to accomplish over the course of this run of scenes. Here's what's happening within the scenes that's making that difficult. And then here within this scene, there's two moments that aren't quite working. And here's something I'm thinking about. And his answer might not have always been right, but his diagnosis was spot on. And it really just was what we needed to hear at exactly that moment. And if you understood my relationship with Craig, which goes back to 2005, I think, or four, you would know how hard it is for me to give him this kind of credit, but the fucker really did help me so damn much. When will Billions be back is a question from Amit. Well, we start shooting it November 5th, season five, but I can't tell you when it's going to be on the air, though it certainly will be. Jack asks, my favorite interview you did was with Seth Godin where you said, stop hiding behind your Bob Dylan. I didn't say that to Seth. I kind of said that to people. And the idea is, how do we, how do we maintain the positive influence in our reverence of those we admire? That is, being inspired and having a North Star versus, holy shit, this guy's a god, which then cues self-doubt and resistance. Well, one way that I've found to do it is to say, well, okay, so what if I'm never going to be Bob Dylan? What if I'm never, so what if I'm never going to be David Mamet? I can try to be the best version creatively that I can. And if I don't make it to be the single greatest writer of dialogue of my generation, maybe I'll have still found a way to entertain some people and still love doing what I, I do. Look, we can make stories out of anything to stop us from doing our work. So just I would just say, look at Dylan the way people look at Hemingway, even though he's still alive. Just look at Dylan like, hey, that's one of the greats, maybe the greatest ever. Maybe I'll never be that great, but I can still be pretty darn good. All right, Kevin, I'm going to answer your question. Kevin said, do you have insight into how so much bad content gets made? Mediocre movies and shows are plentiful. They're not made for free. So where does the money come from? How do backers not see the bad product being made and demand a change? The answer is this stuff is really hard to do. And... Sometimes you're in the middle of it and there are financial reasons why they would continue because if they stop in the middle, then the money's been flushed. It's not a science. Like I said about parenting, it's an art form, all of this stuff. And one wrong casting decision can screw you up. Two bad weeks in an editing room. Um, a cinematographer and a director who view the way something should be lit differently. There are thousands and thousands of ways something cannot turn out great, often starting with the script. But the people making this stuff, we're all flawed. 
We all have blind spots. We all have moments where we're working at our top capacity and moments where we think we are and we're not. And I think throughout time, there have been great books and bad books, great movies and bad movies, great television shows and bad television shows. I would say I've never been on one where people were trying not to make something great. Every time you're trying your best. Like I could take apart Runner Runner, which is a movie um, I was involved in that was terrible. And I could walk you through all the decisions that led to that. The truth is it's an aggregate of decisions, some of which were made by really smart people. I'll give you one. And I've told this on APOD, but not mine, I don't think. When Dave and I wrote that script, one of the ways we felt it would have accuracy, verisimilitude, was that the characters would be wearing basically like sweat, like, sweat outfits, like gym sweats most of the time because that's what the people really wore who were working in these online betting places in Costa Rica. They were wearing like shorts like, and uh, like cargo shorts and like a sweatshirt or a T-shirt. And then the movie studio and one of the producers was like, well, Justin Timberlake can't wear that stuff. I mean, it's Justin Timberlake. He's got to be in like these silk suits. And I remember Dave and I saying, well, the problem is that the moment you do that, the thing stops seeming real. It starts seeming like a slick movie. And if it seems slick, that's going to lead to a bunch of other decisions about how you light it, about the sets, about where people live, about how they live. And suddenly we're going to be in fantasy land. But we lost that fight really early on. And as we thought, it a million decisions followed it that led to the thing feeling fake and forced and bad. But, but the people who wanted Justin to wear those suits, they weren't bad people necessarily by that decision. And they weren't stupid. They were successful people. But the artistic vision that we had and the artistic vision that they had weren't the same. And when that happens, it's very hard to make something that feels good. All right, I think that that's enough of just hearing my voice for this time period. I'll do another one of these in a couple of weeks if you all like them. I have many more questions to get to, but why don't we end it here? Uh, you can write me more questions at the moment, bk at gmail.com. If you want clarifications, you can hit me on Twitter, at Brian Koppelman, and um, I'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>